Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello and welcome to the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby and today, GDP, is it the right measure of a country's wealth or is it downright misleading? And if so, is there a better way of seeing how an economy is doing? That's today on the Debunking Economics Podcast. Well, GDP is generally the measure that we use for the wealth of a country, or GDP per capita, perhaps. And uh, that, in theory, can tell us how we're doing compared to some point in history uh, or compared to other countries in the world. Obviously, we need to adjust it for inflation. But, Steve, as a comparative measure, is this the best measure we've got? It's the best we've got, but it's not the best we should have. This is my, my problem with GDP, is that there's all sorts of fudges in GDP that actually mean it ends up measuring a large number of transactions which are not monetary transactions. Right. They're imputed monetary transactions. So, for example, the, the classic is if you rent your, if you live in your own home, what the statisticians then do is, is impute that you're actually paying yourself rent. So if you're living in a nice part of the south of England and you, you know, to rent a place you're in would cost £20,000 per year, then every property uh, in that region that's owned by its owner is valued as if it's worth £20,000 per year in flow of accommodation services, and that's added to GDP. Now, no money actually changes hands. It's an imputed financial transaction. Even the inclusion of housing is a bit of a concern, isn't it? Because as we've seen, overinflated house prices in, in many Western nations, that's pushing up the GDP because of that imputed measure, is pushing up the value of GDP. But are we any better off for having an expensive house? Well, no, in fact, those things don't turn up in GDP. But the cost of the the imputed cost does. Yeah. But the actual elevated house price doesn't turn up there. But of course, to buy the house, you can't buy the house with imputed money. Well, it's still it's still it's still relates, doesn't that I mean? The rent is going yeah. to be the imputed rent is going to be higher if the house price is higher, presumably. There, there is a relationship, but it's not, it's not all that strong. If, if rents control um, house prices, they'd be a lot lower than they are right now. Yeah, okay. Um, but there, what you've got, you've got, you've got a form of feedback between them. But if you think about what's going on here, when you when we buy goods, when we buy houses, which are existing assets, and therefore because they already exist, they're not recorded in GDP. We use money to do that, so you can't buy an existing house without real money, um, and we, but that's not counted in GDP. Whereas if you look at GDP itself, it does include this imputed rent, which nobody pays. So mm. there's already a fictional, two fictional elements. Um, we ignore one major source of monetary transactions. We turn another one, which is non-monetary, into monetary. And there are other elements in there as well. They have the, like the, the value of your computer is astronomically more than you paid for it because what's actually computed is what's called a hedonic index to say, well, how does this computer compare in terms of functionality to one that you had 20 years ago. And of course, the answer is the one you've got now is far less functional than one you had 20 years ago because of all the stuff-ups that uh, Microsoft have done with Windows make it more, less functional than a DOS computer 20 years ago. I'm being slightly facetious here. Um, I frankly believe that. 
Um, but of course, what's actually happened is the other way around. They they value it a, a PC now, which might cost you know a couple of thousand dollars, maybe yeah. maybe even less than it would have cost ten years, twenty years ago. They value it at twenty times what you paid for it because it can do so much more than the one twenty years ago, and they want to be able to make comparative stats over time. So there are there's at least three fictional elements right. in the way we measure GDP to begin with, and there's a fourth. The fourth is financial services, what's called the sector, finance and real estate. Now, this is a, a huge proportion of any economy these days. In the American economy, of course, at various times, profits of the fire sector were 50% of total profits. Now, how do you measure the output of the fire sector? And the way they do it is simply by adding up the wages. So the more what do you know, Lloyd Blinkenfeld, whatever he's called, or the, the guy who runs, um, you know, um, um, Goldman Sachs, et cetera, et cetera. The more they pay themselves, the more productive they're recorded as being in the in the GDP figures. Uh, so we actually, but if you have the attitude that Michael Hudson has to the scale of the financial sector, and that I certainly share, that it's well beyond the scale where it's got where it's necessary to provide credit for uh, corporations and individuals, and it's now at the stage where it's parasitic, then. I'd actually be wanting to deduct a lot of their so-called um, contribution to GDP from GDP because it's a negative contribution. Right. But, I mean, it, it, it is an easier measure. I mean, there's different ways of measuring GDP, isn't there? I mean, basically, we can, we, can, we can do just that, look at how much we've earned or the other way is to look at how much we spent. And that's, that's where you start to get into all of those, um, you know, assumptions that you have to make around that. I mean, isn't that part of the problem with, with GDP calculations? They are just so bloody complicated. And what would be the problem if we just looked at how much everybody and aggregated it? If somebody is paying yeah. themselves a, a, a ludicrous wage... Won't the market see to that? No, the market doesn't see to that because they're still paying themselves ludicrous wages a second decade after they crashed the financial sector. So don't let the market the market system won't control there. In fact, it's relative power that sets those prices. And and when you've got access to a bucket of money, it's pretty easy to set your own price. Mm. Uh, and that's pretty much what's happening in the banking sector. So you can't rely upon the market to get that right. But what you do have uh, is, is, I think, two important weaknesses in GDP. First of all, all these fictional... Uh, elements that are added in, uh, that, that's, that's you know, the, the whole idea of hedonic prices, the imputed rents, the wages of the finance sector in, in, in one instance. Then you have monetary transactions which don't turn up in our measurements of GDP because they're buying existing assets. So we're ignoring a large part of the monetary mm. dynamics of the economy as well. And that's what I want to, I mean, my right. own analysis. So eBay for, eBay, for example, all of those yeah. where I'm buying something that somebody had and I'm buying secondhand. I mean, again, there's also the, you know, what about, uh, you know, or bartering, you know, so with, you know, money not actually changing hands. You're just swapping something. We don't do too much of that these days. It, 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 but, it, yeah, it depends on whether a new product has been produced for swapping or not. So... Um, again, there's a fair bit of, you know, having rubbish the stats uh, so far, on the other side, there's quite a bit of sophisticated work being done as to whether you classify output of a factory or output of a, um, a handicraft, uh, mm. you know, uh, operation as new goods. You don't, you don't um, 
include the ones which have already been sold. So there's lots and lots of checking of double counting. There's so it's value. Um, you're looking for value added at a different stages. So it's it's quite sophisticated, right? But you're looking for value. You're looking for a value add. In other words, in effect, yeah. how much you how much are you adding to the value of the economy? But but there, there yeah. must be a million and one things that you know. However much you try and count stuff, there must be a million and one examples of things that are not counted. So I'm going to do some work around the house uh, to fix up my house rather than paying somebody to come and do it. If somebody does something, um, then, you know, on that income method, they're going to be measured. Uh, They are adding value to my house or I'm adding value to my house. One way they'll be be measured, the other way I won't be. Yeah, but I'd I'd rather have an accurate measure of the monetary transactions in the economy Mm. rather than adding all these imputed ones in that don't actually happen but boosts the level, apparent level of GDP. The same thing includes for including housework inside there. There have been arguments we should include sex inside there. You know, Mm. what would you be paying to go to a prostitute rather than going to bed with your wife once or twice a month? Um, Oh, am I being facetious this morning? Um, so that that is the um, which one's worth the um, most out of curiosity? <laughs> which one's worth the most out of which one would you if you had to pay, if you had to pay? No, no comment, no comment. Um, but but that that is the extent to which there it it comes down to the, the what's being focused upon in GDP. Are we trying to measure the monetary turn? Uh, activities of a capitalist economy or are we trying to measure the increase in utility generated by our production system now because of the neoclassical stroke austrian issues we spoke about just recently uh, a lot of the measurement of gdp is saying we have to actually uh, measure this imputed increase in the utility everybody is getting and therefore money is just one particular form of doing that and we can include these non-monetary elements of our of our welfare and what we're confusing is a measure of welfare with a measure of monetary activity, yeah, and and that to me is a, is a major failing. Okay, well, I want to get back to that to that very subject, looking at welfare. But let's just look at the comparative uh, analysis of all of this as well. So we look mm-hmm. at uh, we look at countries around the world, and we say, uh, for example, the United States has a GDP per capita that's twice that of Chile. So does that mean that uh, the GDP is adding twice as much value to its economy than uh, than Chile is or that they're twice as well off as people in Chile? Uh, or I guess we have to adjust it for price, don't we? So if you look at the Big Mac index, yeah. for example, the price of things uh, you can live in, in Chile, if you just eat Big Macs, you can live there for half as much as uh, living in the United States. So it sort of yeah. washes out it evens out in the wash, doesn't it? To some extent. I mean, you can, I prefer to use China as my example because I've seen China more, more frequently recently. And when you look at what a middle-class lifestyle is like in China these days, uh, it'd be hard-pressed to say it's worse than a middle-class life in America. Um, you know, they've got their own, they've got their cars, they've got their um, large urban areas, uh, lots of commercial outlets, the, um, the, 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 the public spaces are well-used, um, well-maintained. Mm. You look at it and think, okay, in terms of actual standard of living, uh, to choose between being um, somewhere in the Midwest of America and some of the Midwest of China, I think I'd probably choose China. Mm. So um, that, that does make a difference in, in terms of making those comparisons because, you know, what you're paying for, you're paying a lower price, you've got a lower, lower salary, paying a lower price. Uh, there's more stuff provided by the state. Uh, which is effective, which is part of what your overall satisfaction of life comes from. The Americans are very bad at doing that. So there are those problems with international comparisons. Yeah. But I, my, my thing, I would like to have a measure of GDP based on energy. 
that's where I'd like to start. So, uh, what, energy in production out? Just the efficiency of energy? Yeah, Mm. the the whole thermodynamical approach because what I see a human production as being fundamentally is harnessing the free energy we find in the universe, generating necessary waste out of that because of the second law of thermodynamics, whacking that entropy into the... Into the, um, into the biosphere, both the actual energy entropy and the, the, the materials that can no longer be used, with the waste materials we generate as well, but producing these refined products at the same time. And that's the real measure of what we're adding. Yeah. And then that gets over the short-termism yeah. of GDP, doesn't it? Because one of the, one of the problems with yeah. GDP, you could be uh, boosting your GDP for your economy by chewing up all your resources in the short term and polluting the country. Yeah. Uh, and, the, you know, well, you're still, yeah. a decade, you're, you're a decade down the track, you've, uh, you've, you've screwed the country for short-term gain, a bit, a bit like CEOs do to try and boost the share price of the companies. Indeed. Um, and that's that's surely the, the case we're seeing right now with the impact of global warming on the economy. Now, the thing is, if you try to take into account all the costs, you'd get a negative outcome because of the second law of thermodynamics. So you have to, you, there has to be some mining, there has to be some throw away. Uh, you can't include all the costs because if you did, nothing would ever be profitable. So we, we have that dilemma, but that it's, it's covered by the fact that we get the energy for free. Um, that's That's why we can actually do this. Because we find that you know nobody nobody pays for the sun, the sun just happens to be there. Nobody paid for the coal that we found when we started you know, digging into cliff faces. Nobody paid for the oil that uh, you know came out of the, the ground when Jeb Bush shot a, a shotgun at a rabbit. So that that's the, that's the source that we actually turn into um, our physical products and our consumption. And I would like to measure that in terms of the energy that each of us gets to enjoy as effectively people employing energy slaves. Because if you consider the standard of living around the time Marx wrote back in the 1860s and 1870s, uh, just in terms of, say, uh, house lighting, the average house would have been lit by a candle, maybe the wealthier ones would be lit by gas. The amount of light you'd get would be trivial compared to what we're used to when we, you know, we flick on a couple of um, LCD systems to, to generate us a, you know, a light show inside our, our homes. The actual number of photons that we're enjoying is far higher than the number of photons that Marx would have been writing uh, Das Kapital uh, under. And so in that sense, there's been a, an a, 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 a obvious increase in welfare because of the amount of energy that we're able to consume. And that is the major change that's occurred over the last one and two hundred years. So, what you're proposing? That, yeah, you know, it's not a major shift, is it? What you're talking about? I mean, because it, it's, it's, I mean, what you're talking about really is is still measuring the the the, the value that's generated, the incremental value that's generated, but just putting into the equation how much energy has been used to add that value. Yeah, and then start with the, this. Again, back my whole focus on an objective theory of value. To start with something that actually says this is the actual level of benefit we're getting out of the um, production system we've got on the planet right now in terms of the amount of energy that we get uh, to do for different activities. So if you think about the amount of energy you use just to, you know, hop in and see a potential um, radio um, uh, outlet for yourself in, in London, you know, you, what, you hop on a train in Bath, um, what, one and a half hours later you're in London, you then have your negotiations, you Hop around on the tube, you then head back to the um, whatever station it is, Waterloo, hop on the train, blast back to Bath again. 
with that with that um, amount of energy, that is far more energy than the wealthiest of the kings could have mm. exploited to get from those two locations two centuries ago. So, you know, if the journey from Bath to London, I'm only guessing, but it probably would have taken a week by carriage. Um, now, the amount of energy you're sitting in the train, you're absorbing, uh, exploiting a far higher amount of energy, and fundamentally, that's where our increase in wealth has come from. Right. And we would then need what we then need to do as well as to re uh, to actually measure this the way I'd like to measure it. We need to start in a, in a very hedonic way by saying what are the forms of, of of utility that we absorb. What type of you know obviously um, I mentioned lighting a moment ago. So having lighting um, is one element of the consumption set uh, that we have that we can compare to people 500 years ago. Transportation is another one. Clothing uh, is another. Uh, um, food, the amount of energy in the food we consume, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You could actually take a look at the production system and devise a, a sort of end consumption breakdown of the production process and then say what amount of energy are we therefore consuming in each of these elements, how many megajoules, how many megawatts right. uh, are we taking in? And on that particular front, just to give you an idea of the, the scale we're talking about, the average American labourer, um, if you actually think about the amount of energy they put into production, would, would peak out at about one or two old incandescent light bulbs, you know, about 80 to 100 and, 160, maybe 200 watts of power uh, per Per you know, watts is the measure of energy per second. Yeah. So that's the amount of the energy is moved like you, you can contribute as a worker is about equivalent to one or two light bulbs. The amount of energy you can buy with the wage in England, America is equivalent to about eleven thousand light bulbs. So, right. so yeah. So this, doing, this that yeah. disconnect. So what you're saying is, what yeah. we need is a, yeah. a a form of GDP or a form of, of a measure of wealth, which is looking at the utility that's derived from the energy that we're putting in. That's in effect yeah. what you're saying. Yeah, and that's what I'd like to have. That that, that I'd like to start with that as the most objective measure mm. of GDP. Then have another one, which is the monetary measure of GDP, and we'll also include the transactions on the asset markets. So yeah. you'd actually. Uh, say, look, we're looking at a monetary measure now. We're not looking at um, total output. That's been covered in the previous phase. This phase is looking at the monetary system. And then you may, um, if you wanted to go for a hedonic element at the third stage where you actually include, you know, the value of imputed rent, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's possible to get to a reasonable set of measures of GDP. Well, but at what doing at the, doing at the moment is, is not a good start. What we haven't talked about is, uh, although you hinted on it earlier on, is uh, income disparity, and that's and that's that gets hidden in the an aggregate measure like GDP. And uh, you know, mm. you mentioned utility, and we've talked about this be- before. You know, where you, you might have a, a handful of very rich people bumping up the GDP figure, but they're not getting as much out of uh, out of their spending. As poor people would, you know, they're getting more utility for for the for the each dollar. So it's sort of skewing the figures. The so in both cases, you you know, you you've got to account for uh, what the uh, diversity of income is in the economy, haven't you? Well, this is this is again something which you could do with the monetary measure of of economic activity, including uh, spending on assets, and then looking at what they give you in terms of a wealth distribution. Um, so that's why I want to have that strictly monetary measure at one point. And with that monetary measure, you can then see what is the skew in the distribution of income and distribution of wealth. And, of course, we know that skew is absolutely enormous. And partly in my analysis, um, pinpoints the importance of the level of debt 
in driving up those wealth disparities because a large part of the asset valuation is on leverage of assets. So um, you would need that monetary measure to be able to actually get the inequality in monetary terms accurately measured. And what about happiness, Steve? Where does that fit into all of this? Isn't it? Isn't GDP, if we're wealthier, aren't we supposed to be happier? So GDP, therefore, if we've got a good, strong GDP, we must all be happier as a result of it. The whole point of us being on this planet, surely, is to be happy. And, you know, it's such a fundamental measure and it's lost in the world of economics. Uh, uh, Never uh, gets mentioned. No. One of the reasons we're here is to, is to, is to enforce the second law of thermodynamics. And, and generate a greater rate of um, entropy growth than would exist if humans weren't on the planet in the first place. That's just, our real purpose in life. I'm just here for a good time. <laughs> <laughs> so what are you doing working in radio? I guess I have the best way of having a good time. But I mean, I mean, my point, there you know, you where, how do we measure, how, how do we get the real happiness measure? How do we, because surely that is what counts. Are, are you better off living in the mm. United States or are you better off living in China, as you, you know, as you suggested? Well, then, then you've got to modify what you're looking at in terms of the income, impact of the distribution of income on on well-being. And there's two elements to that. One is, you know, the old classic cliche of a place that had a GDP of half a million and then 50% of the population died, the reason being one person at a million per year, the other end nothing. Um, so you, you have to cover that particular uh, element. The the other is this is um, relative... Um, the attitude we have to our well-being being a relative one rather than absolute. So you don't feel particularly wealthy if you're on your dinghy and Donald Trump sails past and his 300-meter yacht. Um, and Donald Trump, if he doesn't feel happy if Larry Edison goes past him at 350-meter yacht. So <laughs> there are ways we have to have the revalue the subjective, uh, the subjective impact of extreme, you know, on your mm. level of of well-being. Uh, as well as the impact of that inequality in terms of you getting lousy provision of resources versus the wealthy. Uh, so the, the, the whole idea of the mean, the median, the, the skew that exists in income distribution, that all has to be taken into account as well to get an aggregate measure of just how happy we are. And the answer seems to be to, um, pretty much hitting the GDP level of America and the, per capita in the 1950s. There's not a much of an increase after that in more material welfare. It tends to come from improving social services and improving our capacity to relate to each other. And we've done a particular job of that in the last 20 or 30 years. Well, that leads me to the final question then. You know, given the, the GDP measure, the, the GDP measure we have now yeah. and how it's used, uh, given we are so reliant on it, how is it distorting the way our economies operate? Mm. I think quite substantially because. The, the main way there is ignoring the whole monetary system by just focusing upon uh, goods and services purchases and not looking at, uh, at asset purchase and then overvaluing the fire sector. Um, so that gives us a very distorted picture of how we're, we're performing. And that's why you get such angst about the productivity figures. The productivity figures are simply dividing GDP by the number of workers uh, that, that have a job in the economy. And now if you're um, having a slump in the finance sector because of a, you know, a post-2008 downturn, that will turn up as a fall in GDP because you pay less wages. Uh, it isn't necessarily a fall in actual productivity. So there are many elements of the current system that exaggerate um, the 
well, understate a boom because you're not looking at the amount of money going into the asset markets, understate a slump because you don't look at the collapse in asset prices as well and gives us a very distorted picture of how we're doing overall. I'm curious you haven't mentioned the word debt once in this half hour. Oh, I think I did somewhere, surely. I said Trump. <laughs> well, yeah, well, okay. But I mean, it's um, because, I mean, surely that's an element of all of this as well, isn't it? You can have, uh, surely you can artificially create strong GDP growth while uh, while building up whether it's uh, sovereign debt or whether it's household debt. Well, that's that's one of the little examples I use about why does the level of debt as well as the rate of growth of debt have an impact upon the economy? And that's just saying, imagine you have an economy with uh, a GDP of a trillion dollars and a debt level of 50% of GDP, where GDP is growing at 10% per annum and debt's growing at 20% per annum. And then you have debt slowing down the subsequent year to growing just at the same rate of GDP. That um, is my, my simple example of a economy with a debt level of 50% of GDP, where credit is growing at 20% per annum. The total demand of that economy is $1.1 trillion. There's a trillion dollars from GDP and 20% of half the 50% of GDP gives you another $100, $100 billion coming out of credit demand. If you look at another economy where the debt level is 200% of GDP and the other figures are exactly the same, so GDP is growing at 20%, a 10% per annum, and debt's growing at 20%, the demand for credit in that first year in the economy with a larger private debt level is $1.4 trillion, so $300 billion higher than the other because 20% of $2 trillion is $400 billion and you add that to total demand. Uh, so the economy with the larger growth of credit and the high level of debt as well can look like it's a very prosperous economy, and then it will collapse when the rate of growth of credit slows down. So uh, in a nutshell, we're saying that a better measure to replace GDP is some measure uh, that looks at how efficiently we're using the energy we're consuming, mm-hmm. and uh, and throwing into that we need some form of, uh, of understanding of the wealth distribution as well. As a starting point, and then the monetary system, well, you have one level based on energy, another based on money, and a third level based on, uh, if me might say, hedonic adjustments, and also potentially um, a, a fourth level on the happiness. How do, how do we feel? Um, you know, how happy do we feel overall, partly based on the energy that we're getting to consume, partly based on the access the monetary system gives us to that energy, and then finally based on the extent to which we feel peeved uh, when we see people with, with, with awful orange suntans enjoying far, far larger amounts of this money than we get to enjoy. But, you know, what? I don't think he's happy. That's the one thing we can all take out of this. I don't think he's happy. Uh, we're all happier than he is. Uh, look, it's a, it's a good start, yeah, isn't it? Novel. Let's hope Melania <laughs> is not happy. That. Yeah. It's a good start. Thanks, Steve. <laughs> uh, we'll catch you again soon. Okay, mate. Yep. There we are, Steve Keen, and please feel free to add your comments either on the Patreon site or at debunkingeconomics.com if you've got anything to add to today's podcast, and also leave your suggestions too for other topics you'd like us to cover this year on the Debunking Economics podcast. That's it for this week. I'm Phil Dobby. Uh, We'll catch you again very soon. Thanks for listening. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.
If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.